What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to episode 21 of Twigs and Twine. Today, it's just me and Alex, because Joey, God knows what he's doing. Guy never answers anything. Alex, what's going on? Not too much. Sitting back, watching some Blue Jays baseball on a Sunday afternoon. Nothing better you can ask for. Honestly, I haven't followed the Jays that much this year. Uh, how are they doing? Not too bad. Their team overall, like they can generate offense. They have good bats, but... Um, when it comes to the bullpen, they do tend to throw a lot of games. So there's still a few touches that need to be done before we're championship contenders. Beautiful. Because realistically, now the Jays are the best chance of bringing a championship to Toronto. Very sadly. Sadly. So before we start off with our weekly news, I just want to touch upon this week. We have a longtime American, European pro who, after spending the past six, seven years in uh, Europe is going to be coming back to play his trade with uh, the Cincinnati Cyclones of the ECHL. We touched upon that in the interview, breaking news, Twigs and Twine Insiders. Louis Caporuso, a nice paisano of mine, and actually Alex, you're Calabresa too, right? Not Calabresa, no. Unfortunately, no. Never mind, a paisano of myself and Joey's, Louis Caporuso, he came on the show this week, Uh, an absolute pleasure talking to him, and uh, you'll hear about it more in a few minutes. So just to start off with some news that we've been expecting for a while to hear, but we didn't know exactly what it was. So Jonathan Taves, he he went off the face of the earth this season. He didn't play. We heard five words from him all season when he did that that thing for, I think it was Patty Kane's 1,000th or 1,500th game. Yeah, uh, I think it was his 1,000th. So he announced that he was diagnosed with chronic immune response syndrome. He announced it in a tweet saying, and I quote, I wasn't too vocal about the things I went through this year. I appreciate the understanding and support. And I wanted to share this message on where I'm at. He attached a video to it where he went and talked about everything that he was going through. So if I can, I'm just on WGN9. I just want to, just to see the actual description of what the condition is. According to Dr. Greg Sharon, it is part of the allergy slash immunology department, and it is a response where your immune system overreacts. Taves went on to say on Twitter, my immune system was reacting to everything that I did, any kind of stress, anything I would do throughout the day, there's always some kind of stress response. And according to Dr. Sharon, he was probably exposed to a mold his whole life. And genetically, the more athletic, the more flexible you are, the more likely you are to develop some of these immune reactions. The stress combined with the lack of sleep can lead to mold sensitivity. When you overreact, you get tired, fatigue, joint aches and pains, difficulty with your belly, and interestingly, this affects your brain. Brain injury like a concussion can also leave people more susceptible to CIRI. Oftentimes, we hear this gets worse after a motor vehicle accident or after a fall or after a stroke or after a baby is born. Something that has led to a change in your blood-brain barrier. It is a very common trigger for triggering this off. I don't know much about this condition. I didn't do much research into it, as you can probably tell. But we hope he's doing well, and we hope to see him back on the ice next season. Because even though he plays on an opposing team in the, in the Leafs, he's one of Canada's best players in the past 15, 20 years. And regardless of that, I hate to see people going through shit like this where you have to miss an entire year. And he's going through like, all the shit that he just said. Wish him a speedy recovery and hope he's back to 100% health by the start of next season, whenever that may be. Yeah, really well said. Um, I'm no doctor. I don't really... Uh kind of keep up today with any sort of illnesses or whatever or go out of my way to learn them but it's really tough you know a lot of us think of these pro athletes are sort of invincible and they can kind of get through anything but it just shows you that they're just as human as the rest of us are and for a guy who you know we always joke captain serious whatever and you know it's uh Unfortunately, what he had was pretty serious, and I really do hope he can kind of get back to his old self next year, and he can help the Chicago team get out of kind of a rut that they've been in the last couple of years. But nonetheless, really great news that he'll be back coming the next season, like you said, when we don't know, but um, things are starting to look up for that Blackhawks organization. Yeah, 100%. And I'm going to put out right now, the Hawks are going to make the playoffs next year. Taves is going to have one of his best seasons because he's going to come back. He's going to be fired up, looking to make up for lost time. He's going to have one of the best seasons of his career. I, I don't know. Maybe I don't know if it's his best season. When you have illnesses that are sort of like with your immune system or uh, when it affects your lungs and your cardio, it can be really hard to get back into the shape you were prior to. Like I want to see him do well and 100% I want to see him have the best season or one of the best seasons of his career. But unfortunately, I just think it's a little unlikely where he just comes back and it's sort of like he eases into hockey again, which for everybody else, that would kind of be the offseason. But he's had an extensive offseason and he's going to need a long time to get back into NHL form. 
which yeah and i get that but also at the same time you have to think about it there's no way like he he posted this the, that tweet this week there's no way that he's that he hasn't trained uh, even a little bit since last season and also at the same time think about it we're thinking that we're like this is Jonathan fucking Taves here. The guy's an absolute machine. He's going to be on the ice or in the gym basically 24-7 until the season starts. And I think it's late September, early October where preseason starts. I think with a guy like him, you're going to see that he's going to make, he's going to be able to to get back into it. Because that guy's, he's just an absolute unit. I completely agree. Yeah, he's a hardworking guy and he puts in his time to be the best version of himself. It's just your mentality a lot of the times can be extremely different from what your body is able to to sustain i guess like you can want you can have all the drive in the world in your head but if your body's not physically up for it then you know you're kind of shit out of luck unfortunately but like i said i hope they don't rush him back into playing i know it's his choice and whatever to come back but i just hope that he's listening to his body and he's taking all the time that he needs where he can come back and hopefully do a little bit of damage this year yeah you hit the nail on the head there's no other way to put it Anyways, I think this is a better time than ever to send it off to our interview with Louis Capuruso. We hope you guys enjoy. We are proud to have on the show today a longtime American and a European pro, Louis Capuruso, on the show. Louis, what's going on, buddy? Nothing much, Matthew. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Always looking to have the Paisani on the show. <laughs> so let's just get right into it with uh, your time with uh, the University of Michigan. So you decided to make the jump to the NCAA as opposed to going the major junior route, which is a route that most Canadians tend to make. What was your driving force behind going uh, the college route? Yeah, to be honest, a lot of people know what they want to do. A lot of you know young kids know what they want to do earlier on than I did. I, I don't think I ever ruled out the OHL. I think it was just a matter of what excited me the most. It, you know, I was open to the OHL and a lot of kids I watch play these days, they seem to already have made up their mind. And a lot of times I don't know if that's their parents making up their minds or, or it's really them, but they uh, seem to know what they already want to do. I don't think I was the type of person or type of player who knew exactly that he wanted to play college or play in the OHL. I was open to both, but I think what ultimately made me choose to go to Michigan was just going to one of their games. I, I was there for a recruitment trip and uh, it just blew me away. Just uh, the crowd, you know, the helmets, the look of the whole team and uh, the the band playing. And it just seemed something, seemed like something I'd never seen before. It was outerworldly to me and as a kid. And it just opened my eyes to a whole different area of play. And uh, I knew once I watched a couple of games at Michigan that I wanted to be there. When I go to watch OHL games and whatever, I haven't got a chance to watch many recently, obviously due to the situation going on in Ontario, but I've been to Michigan games. I've been to, um, what was the other one? Shit. I can't, I can't remember what the other one was, but I've been to a few Michigan games on during tournaments in Detroit. And that is the closest to an NHL like feel that I've seen out of anything outside of the NHL. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I would even say in terms of the crowd and the way that Yoast Ice Arena echoes the loudness of it and the band, I would say at, at times it's probably a more of an exciting game to watch than it would be to watch an NHL game simply because of the energy in the building. And like, yeah, you nailed it on the head there. It definitely is uh, as close as you're going to get to uh, an NHL experience. So while you were with Michigan, you had a chance to play with Carl Haglin, Max Pacioretty, players who have made their name for themselves in the NHL. If we can just discuss them in patches, even at a young age, could you see like certain ways that they played, like what was going to make them special in the NHL, their potential? Yeah, absolutely. When you're at Michigan, it's one of those situations where, you know, almost every guy can really surprise you with an NHL career. You don't know who's really going to emerge from the pack when it's all said and done because of the top tier recruits that school tends to recruit. But there were obvious front runners when you're playing there. And, uh, you know, Patch Reddy and Hagman were clear front runners when you looked at their capabilities, whether it be, uh, you know, Carl's, you know, incredible speed and his incredible endurance on the ice. You know, there's not many players that can play that quick for that long in a shift. And that would make him so special. He was able to, to play so fast for such a long duration throughout the game and he just never seemed to get tired and he was like a dog on a bone and you know and you could see that the rest of the collegiate hockey had a tough time keeping up with him and then in Max's case he was a first rounder and he came in as a highly touted prospect and immediately he made an impact with Michigan you could see that he had the size and not only that he had the ability to skate and shoot and some pretty decent hands to go along with it so that was uh, obviously he had a lot of the 
you know, the big tools that you look for in a hockey player. And, and he also had the ability to score. And he also had a little bit of a streak to him too. He has a mean streak to him that I don't think you see as much now as he's gotten older. And I think he's got like five kids, but when he was in college, he had definitely a little more of a mean streak that uh, definitely rounded out his game. So yeah, absolutely. I would say, yeah, you can definitely notice some players that have these unique, incredible skills. But uh, at the same time, you could tell that when you're at a, such a top tier school that there's so much potential for so many guys to make that jump. Between the two of them, do you have any stories that kind of stick out with your time in Michigan? Well, I would have a lot more with Carl simply because he's one of my best friends and he was my roommates, you know, since freshman year. And, you know, he was in my wedding party and he's still one of my uh, dear close friends. Stories, I, I there's probably some I probably wouldn't want to say in public, but, but most of them uh, were good ones. Rooming with Carl for four years, I think what impressed me the most about him was just how much attention to detail and how much effort he put into maintaining his physical shape and uh, endurance. It was just, it was such a, a good thing for me to room with him because I realized how, you know, he's a little older than me. So it was nice as a role model to see how hard someone can work off the ice to prepare for themselves. So, I mean, there's just one cool story is that we used to have these uh, spring term training sessions that were just deadly. I mean, most guys would throw up after the workout or during the workout, they were that hard. And on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we'd have to run. And on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we'd have to lift weights. Carl had to head back to Sweden to visit his sister for her wedding. And, uh, you know, if anyone's ever made that flight to Europe and back, you just feel so jet lagged and you're pretty much out of it for two, three days. Well, he made it back for the Tuesday run having been away since Thursday and who knows how much partying he was doing for his sister's wedding or, you know, drinking, eating. And, and he was able to like outrun everyone on the Tuesday, even though he had been gone for four days and probably jet lagged, like you wouldn't believe. And we always remember that story, how he was able to outrun everybody having been gone for four days. And not only that, another cool story about Carl is we used to always do um, stadium steps every year. We used to do stadium steps. And he won the race four years in a row and he didn't lose a race when it came to the stadium steps. And that was one of Red Barrington's favorite training or testings we would do before every season. So those are a couple of cool stories about Carl. Max, unfortunately, I only played one year with him there because he signed with Montreal after the first year. So, but when it comes to Max, I just remember he would, he had this little obsession with Kovalev and it was funny because he was drafted by Montreal and Kovalev was on the team at the time. And him and Aaron Pelushai, which was another really, really good player on the team, they were roommates together and they had a, a poster up in their room and it was called the Kovalev Diet. <laughs> and they would uh, put all the things that they would like to eat and things that Kovalev would probably want to do. So that was always something I remembered. It was, it was really funny, but uh, they were funny, funny roommates. But yeah, that was one thing. But Max, it was, it was good to see because when he eventually signed in Montreal, he got to play and he was actually on a line with Kovalev in an exhibition game. And I remember Kovalev passing to him and him scoring. And for me, it seemed surreal because it was only like a month earlier, I was in his dorm room with him and he was, you know, he had Kovalev posters up and <laughs> idolizing him. And now he's, uh, he's playing with him and scoring goals with him with the, the Montreal Canadiens. It was a surreal moment. So it was actually a funny story about Kovalev that I remember hearing from an interview that I've done of, fuck, that was like six months ago now. We had an interview on the show that I was on before Twigs and Twine started and it was a guy from the Athletic who covered the Pens. And he was saying he saw Kovalev one day and he was coaching his son's team. And he goes up to Kovalev. He goes, oh, so what are you teaching these kids? He goes, I'm teaching them how to play like me. All skill, all skill. None of this other American shit, all skill. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. You know, sometimes you got to admire the European way of hockey because they really do emphasize skill. But that sounds like something that he would say based on what we've seen him do in the past and how much skill that guy had. Absolutely insane. I didn't, I didn't have the chance to see him play basically at all because he retired, what, five years after I was born. But this is the highlights I see of him, just an absolute mutant. Yeah, no, the strength is uh, off the charts and uh, his uh, passing ability, shooting ability. I mean, he's definitely up there when it comes to Hall of Famer Russians and uh, some of the greatest Russians to ever play. So you, you mentioned Red Berenson and I just want to touch upon him real quick. Having a like an NHL legend as your coach in Michigan, like how did he help you improve your game? And just how was having like just his aura in the room, like to put it simply? 
Yeah, it was incredible. I had such a tremendous amount of respect for him going into Michigan. And I think that helped me a lot as a hockey player because I was so open to learning from him because of that respect level that I had. When he would enter the room, you wouldn't hear a pin drop. Uh, No matter how loud everyone was being or how rowdy the room would get, it's something you can't really explain. As soon as he would open the door, no one would, everyone would stop talking. Everyone would just go to their stall and sit down. And that's because of the amount of respect that he commanded and that he had from the players in the room. I think when I look back on my career there at Michigan, I feel like probably the biggest thing that Red taught me wasn't necessarily a skill thing on the ice, but it, it had to do with how you approach the game mentally. And, you know, he would always bring up the idea of will and resolve. And these are two things that are probably overlooked, even though they mean so much to a hockey player. And I think I really tried to instill those types of things in my game when I was there. And that was when it comes to the will, I think he always emphasized that if you don't want it more than the other team, regardless of how much talent we have here, we're not going to win the game. So he always pound that in our heads. And uh, so not only would we go out there and maybe be the better team skillfully, but we would have to outcompete them every night to win. And that's how the NCAA is. It's such a tight checking league. And, you know, then you'd always mention resolve. And I think that was another big thing that I took with me throughout my career. Because when you're young, you know, you may start a game, maybe it won't be so good. You may start a season, it might not be so good. But when you have that resolve, I think at the end of the day, it pays off because you never know when a season might turn in your favor. You never know when a game might turn in your favor. And that was one thing that Red always preached was resolve. And, you know, one of his famous lines that he always used to say in the room was, you know, don't worry about the scoreboard. I'll tell you what the score is after the game is over. That was always the way I tried to approach every hockey game from then on out was just do your thing in the moment and work all the way till the end and uh, want it more than the guy across the ice. And you, you have a pretty good chance of winning. I really like that quote that you just mentioned there. So you spent four years with Michigan in your final year. You were named assistant captain. What are your, some of your best memories as a Wolverine overall over the course of four years? Some of my best memories, you know, they probably aren't the most glorious ones. You know, sometimes it's just the, the little things, I think, about living that college life that made it so special. You know, I look back to being a freshman and, you know, we had a large class. I think there was 12 of us or one of the biggest classes to come through in a while. And, you know, we were in the dorm rooms, all located within steps of each other. And the games we would be able to play on each other pranks we would be able to do against each other and we used to play this game called uh (laughs) i'm not so proud of it now but because i was i'll explain the whole story but because i was a victim of it i think i I don't feel so bad telling the story we used to play this game it was called poo dollar so one day i was walking down i don't know liberty street there in michigan and there was a dollar on the ground and I thought, oh, nice. You know, someone dropped a dollar. I get to pick up a dollar. You're a college kid. Dollar, you know, take you places. So I went to pick up the dollar and little did I know it was, there was poo on the other side of it. So I had all this poo on my hands. But from then on, once it happened to a couple more guys, our whole class decided we'd play the game too. So one day we went up to our friend's dorm room. It was like on the fourth floor. And there was about, I think, 10 of us all from our class, all in the room. And I forget who pooed on the dollar or dollars, but uh, we ended up putting out a bunch of poo dollars on the sidewalk and uh, we even did a poo wallet. So we had someone do it in the wallet. We would wait at the, at the window and we'd watch students come by and pick it up. And as soon as they pick it up, they would immediately like throw it. And then all they would do is look up and see like 10 hockey freshmen just pointing at them laughing and howling so that's a funny memory Uh, I feel bad about it a little bit because I know how gross that can be but I think it's just a rite of passage once you get to college I love it I I fucking love it so I want to backtrack a little bit to June 23rd 2007 the NHL entry draft at Nationwide Arena in Columbus you were drafted 70th overall by the Ottawa Senators before that day did you have any interviews with them yeah actually I did. I was starting, it was my you know first time going through a process like that. And I had a bunch of interviews throughout that year. I had like psych interviews. I had, um, I don't know how to say it, the Rockshire test or the Rockshire test where they, they show you pictures and they ask you what you see. I remember I went to a psychologist to go see that with the Dallas Stars. They put me through a bunch of like pretty intense psychological testing. And then I also had interviews with uh, Atlanta Thrashers they were at the time and a couple with them and I think ultimately I probably met with about 
10 to 12 teams leading up to the draft. Ottawa happened to be one of the last teams I met. I actually met with them at the combine. I didn't qualify for the combine. I wasn't identified as like a top hundred prospect, but nonetheless, they asked me to come to meet with them at the combine. And I remember meeting with them and I remember just having such a cocky interview. (laughs) They were asking me all these questions like, how good do you think you are on a scale from one to 10 and things like that. And I was always giving them the most cocky answer. And it's funny. That was just kind of like, the persona I took on at that time, I think it was probably had to do with a little bit of being intimidated by the whole scale of the, of the situation. But at that time I felt like that was probably my best chance to get drafted just to uh, just be confident. And I remember they were asking me whether they thought I was better than certain players that were going to go ahead of me. And, uh, and I remember telling them absolutely like not without question, I'm better than them. And, you know, you look back on the things you said when you were younger and you realize how cocky they may sound or, but uh, I remember just having that interview with Ottawa and there was, and those interviews are a bit strange when you're at the combine because there's like, sometimes there could be like 10 guys in the room and then you're sitting at the end of the table facing like 10 men that are like in their fifties and sixties or it can be quite intimidating. But yeah, that was my memory of that, that Ottawa interview. So you mentioned that you had a lot of teams interviewing you. I got to ask, cause th- this was around the time of Brian Burke. Did the Leafs and Burke interview you at all? Uh, I got interviewed by the Leafs, but Burke wasn't there. It was their head scout and a couple other scouts i think it was morrison i think he's still there morrison he interviewed me along with i think paul matier he used to be a goalie for the leafs i got interviewed by them at the acc like in their dressing room which was probably one of the more surreal experiences you know i'm playing junior a tier two with the same like those buzzers and then the next thing i know i'm getting a call from the toronto maple leafs to come meet with them and it just felt out like it, like it, it was a dream, really, you know, at that age. And I remember going into the Air Canada Center and uh, now Scotiabank Place and going in through different entrances I didn't know existed and going down hallways I didn't know existed. And then, you know, before I knew it, I was, I'm in a stall. I'm sitting in like Cabriolet. I think it was Cabriolet. You know, I'm sitting in a stall. And, you know, this is a guy I cheered for growing up and just, just a local hero. And I'll always remember that interview. You know, that was... Uh, once in a lifetime experience. And uh, it was too bad, you know, because I think that probably would have been an awesome place to get drafted to, because clearly I grew up as a Leaf fan. But even just having that one experience going there to meet with them was pretty sweet. So you were drafted by the Sins in um, with the 70th pick. So were you at the draft at the time when you were selected? Or were you at home? Because I know uh, certain players like after a certain round, they decide not to show up. I didn't go to the draft. My agent at the time wasn't 100% confident in where I would go in the draft. And, you know, sometimes the draft can be a funny thing and you never know if you'll even be taken. I mean, I kind of learned my lesson from the OHL draft. You know, a lot of people think because you've committed to a team like Michigan that you were out when it came to the OHL. But the truth was, when I was that age, I was still open to the OHL. And I remember when I got pamphlets from the OHL, I would I, I checked off, yes, I would come to the OHL if I was selected. And I remember being really disappointed. I went in like the 10th round to the majors, St. Michael's majors. And it's, it's an honor just to be drafted. It's a pretty cool feeling. But most hockey players, I was a pretty competitive person. And I definitely didn't see myself as a 10th rounder in the OHL. But for whatever reason, I dropped that low. So when it came to the NHL, I kind of kept my expectations low. I didn't, you know, want to think, oh, you know, I'll probably go by this round or that round. And I think that probably played a part in me not even showing up to the draft because I didn't want to be that guy who, you know, goes to the draft and then ends up sitting there and never has their name called. It just, I don't think was going to be received well by my, you know, young, immature ego at the time. I, I just felt. And I think my parents probably felt the same way. So it was something that we decided not to go to. But I remember I, I was just driving around that day because I just didn't want to watch it. And I ended up getting a call from Brendan Smith. He went first round to the Detroit. And now he's playing with uh, the Rangers, I believe. Yeah. And I got a call from him, of all people. And I'm wondering why he's calling me. And, and he's like, he's like, hey, Louie, uh, you got drafted. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, really? I'm like, where? <laughs> He's like, hold on a second. And then he keeps me like on the phone for like two minutes. I can't hear him anymore. So all I know is I got drafted and I don't know where I went to. And then all I hear him say, yeah, third round, third round. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, yeah, but where? <laughs> and then he's still not answering me. And then all of a sudden my phone rings on the other line. And it's one of the Ottawa Senator representatives 
And then I figured I just hung up. I'm like, all right, Smitty, I got to go. And I, and I just switched lines and then it was, uh, it was the Ottawa senators. And that was a, a moment I'll always remember. I just want to touch on after your time with Michigan, after you finished, you started your pro career with um, Binghamton in the AHL. And then later on, you played in the CHL with the Elmira Jackets. What was the biggest differences between the three leagues that you played in that you were able to notice, If whether if it was from a playing standpoint or um, a coaching standpoint, anything? You know, looking back on it, there's a ton of things I would have done differently. As for my assessment of the differences between the leagues, I would say that the AHL it didn't feel as developmental as the NCAA did, obviously, for obvious reasons. There's more turnover, you know, in pro hockey. And that, that, that's from a hockey, from a player standpoint, from a coaching standpoint, you know, manager standpoint. And you can feel that in the air. I think when you enter into the, any organization, you realize the shelf life on a lot of guys from players to managers can be short. That's not always the case, obviously. You know, you see some guys who have long tenors, like, you know, a Lamorello or, uh, you know, some players who play in the same club for their whole career. But you could just sense that in the air. And when it came to the play, I think that reflected it because it's a very competitive environment. Not only are you competing against the other team, but you're also competing within your squad to try to make it to the next level. So it's an interesting dynamic that unfolds when you play in that league. But the play, I noticed... You know, one of my first games, there was like seven fights and I'd, I'd never, you know, at Michigan, there was two fights my whole career I saw there. So right away, you notice it's a different culture. The play was obviously a bit faster. Guys were a bit stronger. But in order for me to have a, a proper assessment when I was playing, I wish I would have been given more of an opportunity. I didn't really receive much of an opportunity there in Binghamton. And the games I did play in the AHL, they always seemed difficult for me simply because I wasn't getting on the ice very much. And the roles I was given to play in the AHL really wasn't suiting who I was as a player. So I would say the leagues definitely differ in that respect in terms of the physicality and pace of play and the competitiveness. And, and then, you know, the East Coast Hockey League was a surprising place to see simply because it probably gets, you know, a worse rep than it deserves. I think people are starting to realize that it's actually a pretty good league. As you know, there's only three lines on each team. so it's really filtered. So it's not like you're getting guys who don't deserve to be in that league. And you're starting to see a lot more NHL teams start using the ECHL as a place to develop their prospects. So I think I was probably surprised when I got to the ECHL as to the level of play. But at the same time, you do notice it is a step below the AHL or obviously the NHL, but you notice it's a step down. But at the same time, you do see little signs of like talent and, uh, and potential in different players and certain games actually could be a really good pace of play. But overall, that's probably my assessment. So we, we touched on a little bit of all the teams you played on, or sorry, not all the teams yet, but um, what was kind of your like, holy shit moment while playing pro hockey? It's so hard to decipher between one. I, I'd probably give you a couple of them. I think like, you know, going to Ottawa's camp and, you know, you're taking a draw against Spezza and Alfredson's on the wing and, you know, you're a kid watching the Leafs play Ottawa in these series, you know, and and now all of a sudden you're on the ice and playing against them. That's obviously an incredible moment. It's it's like a holy shit moment. It almost feels like it's now or never. You're at the top now, right? There's no league above this league. I think that's a, a big moment in, in any player's life. I think when they get to that point where they start seeing players they watched as kids competing against them, I guess you could say that's a holy shit moment. Also, I think one of my first games, there was like eight fights and I was on the fourth line between two fighters in the AHL and <laughs> I had a holy shit moment where I was like, wow, I'm going to have to fight here. And I've never fought, you know, I'm not a fighter. And you realize things change, you know, you don't have the, the cage on anymore. You have a visor and guys are giving you cheap shots, but actually that kind of reminds me. There's one little event. We were playing in Quebec in an exhibition game, Binghamton versus the Hamilton Bulldogs. And we were playing it in Quebec. I forget the town, small little town. I took a puck in the face and I was bleeding everywhere and my nose was broken and I was just kind of skating off the ice and I had to go up past the uh, Hamilton Bulldogs bench in order to get to the doctor's office there. And one of the fighters looks at me as I got blood all over myself. He looks at me and he says, welcome to the jungle. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, this does feel like the jungle. <laughs> So staying on Binghamton, while you were in Binghamton, you got a chance to play with an absolute mutant in the Borough Cup, Mark Borowiecki. 
So we've all heard the stories of this guy going and uh, I'm not sure if it was this past offseason, offseason before, like I, don't, I think it was try like somebody, uh, he saw somebody steal like someone's purse and he got him and he just tackled them and then brought the purse, like gave, gave it back. Like the, like there's so many stories about that guy being an absolute machine. So can you just give us your personal insight into the way he is uh, well after playing a while with him? Yeah, I, I would say he's absolutely probably the most dedicated person I've ever seen off the ice and on the ice, really, to hockey and to his body and maintaining impeccable shape and strength and everything. I mean, he's a force to be reckoned with when it comes to the ability to put to work everything you need to do to be at your best every night. You don't have to look further than that guy. I mean, he's so strong and he just pays so much attention and he, he just works so hard at being the best player he can be on and off the ice. And he's also really, you know, it doesn't surprise me. I heard about that story. That seems like the type of person he is uh, to do something like that. And the guy's ripped. He's ripped. <laughs> and it doesn't surprise me. He's, he's that type of person that, you know, if he sees a wrong, he'll write it. So I just want to touch upon the, your, the beginning of your time in Europe playing in the Dell in Germany with Augsburger. I hope I pronounced that properly. So you played in the States and in Canada for your entire life up until that point, and you decided to go to Germany, which at the time, and even now still, you can make the argument that it's not, like, it's a bit of an afterthought in the hockey world. So what was, like, your driving decision behind going making the trek down to Germany? Yeah, you know, I think it was a combination of things. I think it was, if I were to be honest, looking back on it now, I believe it had to do with kind of losing faith in the American hockey dream. I think. I was starting to feel like it just wasn't going to happen, you know, back in North America. It just seemed like no matter how well I played, you know, it, it just seemed like I couldn't get a call up or I couldn't catch a break. And when the DEL came knocking the, at the German league, I thought, hey, why not? This is a good opportunity to play in a better league because I was in the East Coast at the time. So it was a step up. And uh, I, thought, I thought to myself, well, why not take this opportunity? It may not come around again. I can always come back to North America. And when I went there, I was able to play well. And I had some great teammates and some great coaches and some incredible fans there. And, and I, I just fell in love with the game there because I, I re-fell in love with the game, really. Because, you know, at times when you're in, you know, these East Coast leagues and AHL, it can feel a little dark. You can easily go down a path of thinking that it's not exactly conducive to enjoying yourself playing the game anymore. And uh, I think I was there. I was having a good season. Really good, actually. I thought I was at the top of my game, to be honest. And I was just surprised time and time again as to why I wasn't getting a good shot in the AHL. And I thought, well, you know, when Germany came knocking, I thought, well, maybe this is the next best thing. And uh, I can challenge myself by going there and uh, seeing what that's all about and evolve my game. And at the time, I still felt young and I felt like I could you know, the sky's the limit still. And uh, I just decided to take that chance. So in 2019, you signed with Asiago in Italy. I hope I pronounced that correctly. As an Italian Canadian, what was it like to experience living in Italy, getting closer to your roots, but also playing the game you love? Yeah, that was incredible. I mean, I think, you know, I, I always used to tell my wife and my family that at some point I want to play in Italy. And I just felt like it was the time to give it a shot before I decided to come back home and start playing at home again. And Italy was always in the back of my mind as a, as a place I wanted to play in and having an Italian heritage and speaking the language a bit. It, uh, it was such a smooth transition for me and to play those. I think I only played like a couple months there, but the couple months I did play there, you know, I had a blast. The guys are so nice. And to hear Italian in the locker room and just to be able to speak Italian at the corner store, it was something special. And uh, I would love to get back there one day. And even just when I'm older, just to visit, you know, it's often a forgotten about piece of Italy up there in the north because I think there's so many Southern Italians around where we are in Vaughan. But the north there with the Alps and the, the mountains, it's just beautiful. So uh, one thing I'm curious about, because I know I struggle with this too at times, how much did the dial, uh, you, like your dialect that you speak, how much did that uh, affect you when trying to talk to the boys, talk to the coaches? Yeah, 
I don't have too bad of a dialect. I, I mean, some of the words, my, you know, some of the Calabrese dialect, like, you know, just I'm sure you know some of the words, Matt. It could be different. At times when I would slip up and sound a little more dialect, I'd get ripped for it pretty good from all the boys there in Italy. So they used to have like, they had a nickname for like Southern Italians. I don't know if it was derogatory or not, but they used to call like Southern Italians Teroni. I don't know if, they, if that was meant to be a chirp. But they would just like look at me and be like, Teroni, every time I would say something in a little bit of a dialect. Yeah, you mentioned you had a great talent there. You fucked 18 points in 19 games in the Alps League and 3.6 games in just elite prospects as it is Italy. So you played in multiple leagues that year for Asiago. So what was the difference between the Alps League and just the Italian League? Well, the Italian teams in the Alps League play in their own little tournament to win the Italian Cup. If that's how it works, it's like a little Italian tournament and it's like best of three rounds. It's top four teams make it. It was all new to me and it was it was cool. Yeah, it was cool. It was cool playing those teams. It, you know, you, you go to some places like Cortina, which is such a beautiful location in Italy. It was funny when we'd be driving in the mountains, I'd be like taking pictures. All these guys would be like getting ready for the game. And I, it's not that I wasn't getting ready for the game, but I was just so blown away by some of the breathtaking views. And I felt like a tourist at times driving to these places. So after that first season in Asiago, you took a year off, obviously with the COVID pandemic, affecting everyone worldwide, actually affecting Italy a lot more than everyone everywhere else for the longest time. So what was your uh, your thought process behind taking the time off? Was it just pure COVID or something else? Yeah, I can't say that it was something that was planned. I think it just kind of ended up working out that way. I had planned to go back to Italy, actually, for the following year, but they didn't know where things would stand with COVID. And at the same time, my wife was pregnant with our second child. And I think we just kind of wanted to get our bearings right before we decided to make a decision to uproot the family again. And I also believe in the back of my mind, I kind of felt like I wanted to come back home and play in North America again. So I would also chalk it up to a little bit of indecisiveness as to where I wanted to be, where it was best for our family. And when the time came and we realized that we wanted to be, stay in North America, I think there might have been time for me to still get on a team here in North America, but it just didn't seem like it would be the smart thing to do considering there was no ice in Toronto and all the lockdowns and just to be able to ramp up to a, a game play didn't seem feasible at the time. So we thought maybe it's best we just start in the following year. I know, although it does hurt to miss a year, I felt like a lot of guys are going to be in the same situation. So, you know, it gives me more time to skate and start to ramp up to uh, the following season and come in with a fresh mindset. You mentioned the following season, and have you decided where you're going to be playing next year? Yeah, yeah, I'll be playing with the Cincinnati Cyclones next year in the East Coast Hockey League. So has, has that been announced yet, or are we breaking this on here, break some breaking news? <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, it hasn't been announced yet. I actually haven't officially signed yet. I don't know when that happens. I don't know when the, the period is where they can officially do the signings. But yeah, as from a, for besides the cl people close to me, yeah, this is a, a public announcement, number one, really. Twigs and Twine Insiders, breaking news. I'm going to let you go. I know this interview is going a little bit long. One thing I want to get, I want to get your opinion on before uh, we let you go this Friday, we're recording this interview on Canada day, July 1st and tomorrow Italy's playing Belgium at the quarterfinals for the Euro cup. What's your prediction? My prediction is I think it's going to be a two nothing win for Italy. Chiesa is going to score the first goal. And then the second goal is going to be scored by a defenseman, maybe Spinazzola. And it's going to be two nothing for Italy. That's bold. I like it. All right, Louis. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much, guys. I really enjoyed speaking with you both. All right. But take it easy. Battle Ciao, ciao. Again, we'd like to thank Louis for coming on the show this week. Absolute beauty. And we wish him all the best uh, with Cincinnati next year. Now, let's just move on to a bit of controversy with the end of the season. You got the awards coming out and the uh, NHL first, second, and rookie all-star teams. And one thing that really made me curious and kind of really pissed me off. Why is it that Marc-Andre Fleury won the Vesna, and he was only named on the second All-Star team. When Vasilevsky didn't, like, didn't win shit, aside from the cup that he's going to win in about, two, in about, what, two days? Or is it tonight, even? Monday night. So, why is it that Fleury fucking didn't make the first All-Star team? That seems like bullshit. Especially considering you got the Hart Trophy winner in, in McDavid and the Norris and Adam Fox on that first All-Star team. Yeah, I was just going to say, I feel like it's kind of a throwing a bone to Vasilevsky. Like just, hey, you know, you didn't win it. Yeah, uh, Flurry beat you out, but you know what? Here, your second place isn't so bad. Here's the first all-star team. You know what I mean? Yeah, I look at the lineup too, like Adam Fox, Kel McCart, they're good players, 
But I'd still put up the argument that Victor Hedman beats out Kel McCarr. Personally, I think so. I'd say you put Fox. Fox stays regardless. Yeah, Fox stays. And then I think Kel McCarr beats out. Is beaten out by Hedman? Yeah, you can make that argument. But I'm not sure how the voting goes for the All-Star teams compared to the awards. But you have to have the Hart Trophy and the Norris and the Vesna in there. And that first All-Star team. I would think so. But then again, if it's one of those where you have other people voting, like fans or whatever, like you said, you're not too sure how it works. I'm not either. Hey, listen, if it was fans, there's no way it's fans because they wouldn't be throwing fucking Brad Marchand in there. Yeah, that's, that, that is very true. That is very true. But also at the same time, like I'm looking at it right now and they don't do it like from a forward standpoint, they don't do it by left, uh, forward, 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 like F1, two, three. It's center, right wing, left wing. Because I'm looking at it like I'm my first thought was, where the fuck's Austin? Why is he not a, like, why is the rocket winner not on the first all-star team? But you're not, you're not beating on McDavid. Defense, yeah. 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 But defense doesn't matter. It's D1, D2. And the, remember, these are all um, based off a of regular season gameplay. So if you're wondering why Mitch Marner is up there. That's why I at first look, I was like, why is he there? And then I remembered it was all strictly regular season play. They don't incorporate any, uh, any play from the playoffs. Yeah. It's a little bit of controversy here. I get it that Vas, like Vasilevsky won the cup last year. He's probably going to win the cup again this year. The sweep's looking more and more likely each game. <laughs> a little side story just from my own shit that went on. So was at work on Friday. I work at a restaurant in the Toronto area. So whatever, we had, it was the patio and we have the TV there. First, we we're showing the Italy game and then at, at night, we we're showing the cup final game. And one of my last tables, so I go, I'm like, yeah, what I'm trying to, like my usual thing, oh, is there anything else I can do for you? He goes, yeah, you can do me one favor. You, he goes, you could tell the Habs to score a fucking goal. I'm like, buddy, not happening. Sorry. Tampa sweep. It's going to be a Tampa sweep. <laughs> uh, Hab fans. Yeah. Uh, unpopular opinion, possibly this may be the most boring series of all the playoffs. I think, personally. Uh, of all of this year? This year, yeah. Let me explain. Only because the Stanley Cup playoffs are supposed to be the best of the best teams. I'm not discrediting Montreal for anything they did. Like They grinded their way to the finals and they earned the right to be here. It's just when you compare them against Tampa Bay... Oh, it's just... It's David versus Goliath. Yeah, and I don't remember. Did I say they were against what? No, I think I said they win in five. They'll take one in Montreal. Yeah, yeah, you said one in five. I said one in six. It's just really hard to... Personally, hard to watch. I can't sit down and watch it only because Montreal just gets hammered so much. It's just like men and boys, and it's not, for me, enjoyable to watch. I didn't watch game one, game two. I was busy doing other things. But like again, like I was there on Friday working, whatever. I was serving my tables and then checking in on the on the game every few minutes, whatever. I serve that table. I come back in. I, I don't know what I have to do if I have to go grab food, if I have to clean something. I'm not sure. Come back 10 minutes later. It was like, Tampa scored another two on top. I'm like, fuck, okay. It's a shit kicking. I think their magic's run out. Carey Price's magic's run out this year. Unfortunately, Tampa Bay's just too much for the entire Montreal team to handle. And Carey Price can only do so much for you before, you know, you have to start looking to your guys in front of you, your forwards and your defensemen. And you start to asking for them for production or uh, to play a lot better defensively. One thing I actually read, I read an interesting stat this week. The COVID pandemic has helped the Montreal Canadiens a lot. Because without the bubble system of last year and the division-based system of this year, the Habs would have missed the playoffs the past two seasons. I think they were like the 19th place team this year, overall. Ninth, were they 19th? Was it that low? Even in a 1 versus 16, they would have missed the playoffs. Oh, wow. They just kind of snuck through. I don't remember where they finished, but... Uh... They finished fourth in the Canadian division. You know what? Fuck, I'll tell you right now. Hold on. Just look at the overall standings right now. Montreal finished 18th in the league. They finished with less points than three teams that missed the playoffs. Or two teams that missed playoffs, sorry. They, they finished 18th. Uh, the 16th and the 17th place teams, the Rangers and the Stars, both missed the playoffs. I can understand why so many other teams are so pissed off at the uh, the playoff formats. I understand this year was a little different, but if you look at all the few years back in general, something's got to change. But that could be an entire episode on its own. They talking about uh, 
playoff format changes. Hey, with the summer coming up, we got a lot of slow weeks on, ahead of us. So, yeah, leading into August and September, I think July 28th is free agent frenzy. You're not wrong, yeah. We'll save that for then. We got a few things we want to try and uh, do this summer. A few things on the horizon that um, we're just going to leave it at that for now. And then we'll, as uh, more information comes available to us and as more things get confirmed, we will re- let the listeners know periodically. Anyways, been on this topic for way too long. Moving on to the Canadian teams. Ryan Nugent Hopkins signs an eight-year, $5.125 million per season deal with the Edmonton Oilers, which is a signing I do really like. I'm not 100% sure where he's been playing this season. If I actually, I probably should have looked this up beforehand. I think he was, he was bouncing around the entire lineup. So I'm going off of Daily Faceoff right now. And right now it's showing that he was playing second line left wing with Ryan McLeod and Zach Cassian. I remember there was times like he was third lining, then he was called up for first line. He was kind of all over the place. I mean, because think about it. You have McDavid, Drysaddle, and Nuge who can all play center, and they can all play on the wing too. So, yeah, it makes sense. He's he's versatile, but realistic for 5.125 mil per season. I like that signing. You see, it's tough. He's 28 years old, and he signs for eight years. He can be in this contract till he's 36 years old, and he has a no-movement clause. So unless he decides to waive it, he can be, you know, one of the worst players in the NHL making $5 million. I know that's not a whole hell of a lot. It's one of those term deals. I'm going to interrupt you here. This year and next year aside, because of the flat cap with, with the pandemic and all, that's a salary. In five years' time, that's a salary that's going to be the equivalent of $3 bucks right now. The cap is going to jump up a lot. Yeah, it's just when he signed for that long, I mean, it's not a terrible deal. Don't get me wrong. It's just if I were the Oilers, I would have tried to sign him to a contract maybe between the five and six year range. Seven and eight, I, it's it's not terrible for either side. It's just I think it's a little high. It is possible that they've made that offer, but New Jersey agent said, okay, you want to sign us for a five-year deal? Seven million plus. No, I'm like 100% sure. I have no proof, but I'd be willing to bet my life savings that's what happened. Okay, so I'm just looking at on his hockey DB page right now. This season, 52 games, 16 goals, 19 assists, 35 points. Last season, 65 games, 22 goals, 39 assists, 61 points. In a full season, 28-41 for 69 points. Nice. 62 games, 24-24 for 48. He's been a consistent point producer. Consistent, for the most part, 18-plus goals per season. Not even, no. Because I keep forgetting that we only played 52 games this season. He's been healthy, aside from the one season in 17-18 where he only played 62 games. But even then, he had 48 points. He's a consistent point producer. Yes, that contract is long. But at the same time, you're going to have him there, and you're going to have him at 35-36 whenever that contract's up. Yeah, it's going to be worth a lot. But... You're going to have him there. He's going to be able to go into that mentor role for the younger players that eventually come in, which God knows who that's going to be. And I think that contract's going to work out. Put it this way. Would you rather have Nuge at 5.125 for eight years or Tavares at 11 for eight years? These are completely different contracts, though. From a player standpoint. Oh, from a player standpoint? I'm not comparing Nuge to Tavares, but given like the role that they're going to play, what do you think is more value given their role? Personally, I prefer Tavares, but like as a player itself... But like, if I had to choose between Tavares at 11 and Nuge at 5.1, I'd probably go Nuge. It's a cheap contract. He took a discount on you. He's coming off a six by six deal. He took a, what is that? Seven eighths of a million discount. Like I would personally take that. I, I like the commitment that, that he took a discount given that his point totals, if anything, he could have like warranted a bigger extent, like a more expensive extension. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I'd probably say I'd want the Nuge Hopkins deal. Only for the fact that I'm sick of seeing Tavares at $11 million. But when you put in perspective the way you have, it's just, you may be right. We may want prefer the new Hopkins deal over the John Tavares deal, but it's tough. There's some people that would be completely for having the Tavares deal. I would assume that it's kind of split down the middle in terms of who would want what. You know what I mean? Actually, that's an interesting theory. Anybody listening, send us a DM on our Instagram at Twigs and Twine Podcast or on Twitter at Twigs and Twine Pod. Let us know, like, what would you rather have? The Nuge contract or Tavares contract? And again, I'm not comparing the two, just given the roles that they play. Which contract has more value to the team? Exactly. Which I would have to say Nuge has more value to the team because given that JT is playing, what, second line and then first line power play. That's not a high value contract. Yes, that gives them one of the best scoring lineups in the league. But I don't know, I think Nuge, especially taking a discount. Yeah, 
he acts as more of a compliment, not even a complimentary piece. I wouldn't call him complimentary. I think he, like, he's shown that he can, he, he given his own. Like he's his own player sort of thing. Exactly, exactly. Anyways, yeah, let's move on from that to some Leafs talk. Speaking of discounts, Wayne Simmons, he's back. Two years, 900K per season, $1.8 million total contract. I love this extension. I love the fact that he took a discount from 1.5 mil. And I personally really like this extension. I haven't been the biggest Wayne Simmons fan this season. But also you have to think about it. He was injured for a while, like his new team. The idea of playing in front of an empty building is still, like, it's, it's a mind fuck to people. So I'm excited to see what happens when he's back healthy, hopefully in front of a full stadium. 22, 21, 5, whatever, how many thousands of people. Yeah, another one of these contracts I personally love. We saw it with Spezza. He takes a hometown discount. He would have taken less, we heard him say, given if he had the opportunity to. Uh, Wayne Simmons, under a million dollars, a $600,000 pay cut. I mean, you can't ask for any more from these guys in terms of, I guess, from a financial standpoint, to put it like that. It's just, these guys are kind of showing up these young guys like, hey, if you want a winning team, these are the kind of contracts you have to be taking. But we're too far down a road where we can't change anything, sadly. I'm sure you could hear the disappointment in my voice while I was saying that. Sorry to interrupt you, but only if we can. Like, I, w- I wonder what would happen if the NHL had like uh, a system where you can restructure a contract midway through, midway through. Is it the MLB or is it the, it's the NFL? The NFL? Where you can, yeah, where you can like basically mutually terminate the contract and then re-sign the same, re-sign it. That's what Patrick Mahomes did. And now they got re-signed so many great players and they're going to go win another championship. And the NHL should take notes, but it's not necessarily my place to comment on that. Could help with your viewership. Hint, hint. Hint, hint. Somebody clip this out. Send it over to Gary. Oh yeah, no. And also, nothing about Spezza. I just love the fact that he was complaining that he couldn't take less because he signed on a league min deal. That's the only time I've ever heard somebody complain about a raise because I don't fucking still don't know why, but league min was raised from 700 to 750k when the cap stayed flat, which makes no sense because I thought they ju- like they make the league min and the league and the max based off of uh, percentages. Percentages, yeah. I would have thought so too after having our conversation with Ryan a while back. Yeah, and that was four months ago. Yeah, I know. But like you said, a guy complaining about getting a raise, that's not every day you hear that, eh? But it just shows you his character though, right? He's a team first guy. And those are the players you love, love having on your team. Oh, 100%. It also helps that he that he fucking... What was his contract with Dallas that, that he was on before he came to Toronto? It was like, was it five by eight? Like five years, eight million per? He signed seven by seven in Ottawa and then four years by seven and a half in uh, Dallas. Jesus Christ. How much has that guy made in his career? Okay, Cap Friendly, the greatest website in hockey. He's made $88.8 million in his career. And a good, how how long? Four years? A good four years was with Dallas where they have no state tax. Yeah. But then in Canada, like half of it gets taken away anyway. Fuck, you know. We're we're not a political show. We just kind of give our thoughts and all that about hockey, not about politics. I mean, we can sit here and complain, but then there's going to be other people that just don't care enough. So, I mean, yeah, we could sit, we could sit here and complain, but at the same time, realistically, we're not. None of us are going to end up make, like me, me, you, and Joe. You're not going to end up making enough money, like where we're pissed off about losing four and a half million dollars. Fair, yeah, fair enough. Anyways, so let's move on to the. This is the final topic of the night, technically, but it's a double. There's two head coaching signings uh, in the past week. Andre Turgny. I hope I pronounced that right. I'm terrible at pronouncing Quebec names. People know him as the head coach of the Canadian World Junior Team. He has signed on to be the new coach of the Arizona Coyotes. And Don Granado has been permanently hired as the head coach of the Buffalo Sabres. We'll, we'll go th- from Turgny first. I like the Arizona team. They're like, from the little I have seen of them, like they're a fun team to watch. They're And they're a very young team. And Biz on the radio is just insane. Had a bonus. Oh, yeah. Complete bonus. I like the signing. I'm curious where Turney has coached before. Oh, I have that here. He spent time in the QMJHL Quebec. Uh, he had an assistant coaching role with Patrick Waugh when he was with the Avalanche. He was their primary defensive coach. He then signed on as the assistant with the Senators in 2015. He was fired in 2016. Signed a five-year head coach deal with the Halifax Mooseheads of the QMJHL. And in 2017, he left to join the Ottawa 67s. 
joined Canada in 2018 for the U18-2018 Linka Gretzky Cup. 2019-20, he was the assistant coach of the junior national team in 2020. Oh, yeah, I just said that. He's been on the, the world junior team for the past two years. As Last year as an assistant, this year as a head coach. And he is currently an assistant in, um, or he was an assistant at the World Championship with Canada. So he's had a long fucking career. He started coaching in 98-99, isn't it? They're getting an experienced, co- an experienced coach in the junior ranks, so he's experienced with younger players, which could help out with this team. But he's never had his own head coaching gig in the NHL, so this will be a very interesting, a very interesting arrangement. To see what works out for them. I do like the signing, though. Like it's something different. He's forty-seven. He's still young from a coaching standpoint. Like not everyone's going to be fucking Sheldon Keith. Was it Keith's what thirty-eight? Yeah, he's not hit forty yet. The fucking guy, fucking guy's a baby compared to the rest of the league. And I'm talking from an age standpoint. I'm not saying Keith has a baby personality. I know, I know, I can get fucking like crucified for that. Just to clarify that really fast. Just to clarify that quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like the signing for um, Arizona. I'm curious to see who he's going to bring on as assistant coaches, or if he's going to keep the current ones there. And just touching on Don Granado. Actually, sorry, no, Alex. I don't think you gave your your thoughts on Turgy. No, yeah, I just want to say mutually beneficial. That's the word. Uh, signing for both teams, Tiernier. I hope, like I said, I hope you, I hope I pronounce that right. He finally gets a crack at the NHL to show him what he's learned over the years and see if he can bring life to this new Arizona team. And and then from Arizona standpoint, like uh, you touched on while we we're reading through his experience, he has a lot of experience with younger players and developing young guys. And that Arizona. That organization does have a lot of young players in their lineup and in their system. So uh, it should be fairly exciting to see uh, what he can do. And hopefully, I wouldn't mind seeing Arizona as contenders. I mean, that might be a little bit of a different take, but... You're not off there, but not this upcoming season. I give I give it two years. No, not this upcoming season. Uh, maybe a couple of years down the road. I say two, three years, they're going to be contenders. But other than that, like, I think they make the playoffs this upcoming season. First round exit, though, which that is a win. Yeah, I just want to finally see him have a little bit of success. I want to I finally want to see Biz fucking doing a radio show for a radio broadcast for the playoffs. That would be good, too. Yeah. God. And uh, now the fun part, which fucking pissed off that Joey couldn't make it for this episode because this is uh, what we do best or he does best even better. Don Granado. He's uh, been officially turned from interim to permanent head coach of Buffalo. Which I really do not like that signing because they played like absolute shit this season. The only one reason why I think they wanted to keep him on for another season is just to give him a full season chance because he was signed on halfway through because they got rid of was it Kevin Adams? Not Kevin Adams. Who was the coach before Granado? I don't know. Is it bad that I don't know it? I feel like a lot of people wouldn't know. It's Buffalo. Who gives a shit? That's why. Yeah, that that's what I mean, right? Was it Phil Housley? Ralph Kruger. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, it was Ralph Kruger. Yeah, it was Housley before Kruger. Uh, I really do not like this signing, or this signing because, like, why would you go with a coach that was a part of that terrible season like that? That's a coach that you just let go and you find somebody else. It is also possible that no one, that no coach in their right mind wanted to take that dumpster fire team for anything less than, like, 10 million bucks a year. I don't know. Think of it this way. With this team, it looks like they're going to have a great shot at Shane Wright this year. Shit, that guy's, that guy's career is going to be ruined. Yeah, I feel so bad for that guy. Oh, no. Jack Eichel situation all over again. I mean, like, yeah, you said it. It's not the greatest signing in the world for this team. And I couldn't think of any other coach that would want to take the reins for that franchise if they're not paid like $20 million a year. But you kind of got to start somewhere. That's the only thing. I'll credit the Sabres for kind of restarting, I guess, and finally hiring a head coach that'll, I don't want to say that'll make them a better team because we haven't necessarily seen anything great come out of that organization in a long 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 time except Eichel. what do you mean what do you mean buddy john scott zan kapanka come on yeah uh yeah i'm sorry it's just i don't want to sit here and bash him because i was thinking before we recorded i saw the topic and i was like oh i'm gonna be a little bit supportive toward them you know they're getting a new coach maybe things will finally start to turn around for these guys but now that i'm sitting here talking it feels as if i have like i'm obligated to chirp them i get where you're coming from but at the same time like fuck like i get i get if it ain't broke don't fix it but it's broken it's really broken like this is the team that drove out their franchise centerman and their 
past franchise D-man because Ristolainen was their franchise D-man for a time. We'll see. It's another one of those time will tell, you know what I mean? Yeah, fuck, it is possible that they just need to give uh, Granado a chance to build a team of his choice because he's gonna. I feel like he's going to have a lot of say in uh, in trades and signings. Like He's going to be able to build the team that he chooses. I, I would expect him to have a say. Otherwise, it's not a good start in that rebuild. I've heard some teams where the coaches don't get a say as much into their teams. Yeah, which makes absolutely zero sense because you need a coach to coach the way they want to coach and with the players that with the system that they want to implement. The coach should go to the GM and say, "I want player A, B, C, D, E. Get try and get as many of these guys as possible, or one of these. Get one of these five, or one of these whatever. I don't know. Anyways, yeah, I think uh, it's a good time to end it off for this week. Thank you all for listening to episode twenty one of Twigs and Twine. Thank you again to Louis Caparuso for uh, coming on the show this week. An absolute beauty. That's it. This has been uh, Twigs and Twine presented by the Undrafted Sports Podcasting Network. Have a great week, guys. We'll see you all next Wednesday. Take care, y'all.